Face, a podcast about weird stuff. I'm Peter C. Hine, and joining me as always is my old friend, co-host, and an absolute Dharma queen. He walks the middle path between weird and very weird, and he's currently keeping busy by going through endless cycles of birth and death and rebirth, only to find that in every incarnation he ends up co-hosting a podcast about weird stuff with me. He's the man who literally introduced me to Nirvana and Green Day. It's Mr. Stephen James Buckley. Wow, that was that was the best one yet, I think. I say that every time, and then I say that every time as well. I need I need to work on a a response to your introductions to me, but the problem is I don't know what they're going to be. And by the time they hit me, I'm just so blown away. And that one in particular had references to 90s alternative rock in it, so I'm just, yeah, wow, thank you. So, our guest tonight, trained for years as a Buddhist monk in the Tibetan tradition, he's an accredited therapist and leads meditation retreats here in the north of England, so hopefully he can bring some much-needed peace of mind to the Vase Institute of Overthinking and Catastrophic Worry. It's Mr. Roger Jayamana. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, to get into this, let's talk a little bit about your past and how you came into this tradition and what first got you started on this path. So, what was your introduction to Buddhism? Okay, so uh, it's a really tricky question to answer because there's many points in my life where I could say that's where it began. So, what I mean by that is when I grew up, my next-door neighbor was a real, uh, you know, um, devotee, I suppose, of a famous Tibetan teacher around in the 70s. It's so much so that she had them living in her house. So that wow. was that was my next-door neighbor, right? So, you know, in a semi-detached in, you know, suburban London. So I grew up with someone in my life who already made me aware of the Buddha, already made me aware of meditation in a, you know, not in a really heavy way, just was aware of it. I was always aware of it as an infant. How old were you at that point? I was three when we moved. Right, okay, there. so that's really early then. So, yeah. Uh, but it, I, I, I don't want to overstate that. It wasn't like a huge part of my life or anything like that. It was just there. And, and my uh, father's from Sri Lanka, so we also had you know, Sri Lankan imagery of batiks and various, you know, ornamental kind of things on walls and on shelves and things that would also have some Buddhist imagery as well. So there was that sort of awareness. And then you can pretty much fast forward to when I was a teenager, sort of early teens, I started reading a lot of Jung. I was very interested in... Um, I wasn't so much interested in dreams per se. It was much more the unconscious and the archetypes. Obviously, there was a dream factor to that, to which led me to reading a, a neurology book, I think. It was, it was definitely about the brain, so it had neurological aspects to it. And the last chapter had chapter on the, the kind of the concept in Tibetan Buddhism especially. My point being that it was it was talking about the reflection of dreams, and, f- and not just dreams, but, but falling asleep and falling into unconsciousness as a kind of microcosmic process that reflected the death process. So what's called in Tibetan, what's Vardo. Vardo means, just means the place in between. Um, 
but it's it's now usually referred to if someone says the bardo they're usually referring to the point between death and rebirth yeah yeah so i read that chapter and it was like reading i'd say it's pretty much the same feeling some i'm sure some people would have where you read an old letter that you wrote to a friend or an old diary entry from when you were like a kid or something and you suddenly kind of it's just very familiar and a lot of things come back a lot of resonances and feelings come back. and so when i read that it was it was almost like i was reading something i'd written like oh, that's the only way i could explain that really um, was that you you think to your early experiences with your neighbor or do you think this is something more sort of deep and innate i go much more with the deep and innate thing i mean obviously uh from a buddhist perspective it's going to be karmic thing right and is that do you think that was a similar was it a similar feeling to the experience of deja vu or was it different i'd say for me i'd say deja vu is there's there's more ambiguity to it whereas that feeling was more really like finding an old toy that you've forgotten about yeah like and i don't mean that in a trivial sense i mean no. in the sense of oh yeah oh yeah of course you know I've forgotten that because, and in, in the same way that you would find something like that, you always kind of knew it, but you'd just forgotten. It, it wasn't that, it, you you know, it wasn't like I was learning. And that was the, the, the main feeling was that I was not learning it. it. didn't feel like I was learning it. It was more like, oh, yeah, a bit like someone sort of re-explaining soccer tower and trigonometry or something. It was like, oh, yeah, of course, yeah, totally forgot about that. I was just wondering, is it, obviously there's the word deja vu and it's kind of quite a well-known thing. Is what you're describing something which other people have uh, experienced, but, you know, with reading um, texts like Similarly, this or kind just of in general? Yeah. I've heard a lot of people say similar things. I've, I've, I've had this experience probably most when meeting people. Um, yeah. You know, when you've got the feeling that you've met them before, when you know that, you probably haven't. Yeah, and I think that the 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 phrase "the proofs in the pudding" in many ways is does it affect you? Does does that you, you know you can kind of claim that something's really affecting you or, or hit you in a very profound way? Is it still doing that thirty years later? And I can say yes. So you think that that reading that chapter and having that feeling kind of set you on the path that you've taken for the rest of your life? I would say so, because what happened from there was I absolutely devoured anything I could get my hands on in terms of Buddhism. You know, I was only a kid. And this is 1990, right? So, I mean, we were just, we're just talking public libraries and not talking internet. So I was trawling through. I, I just remember every bookshop and every library I go into, Every book I open, I go to the index, look up B for Buddhism, D for Dharma. I pretty much went it alone for three or four years until I was, yeah, I was 19, so four years. And then I got connected with a, a Nyingma group. And Nyingma is one of the four main traditions of Tibetan Buddhism, one of the four main schools. And so I spent a lot of time with them, 
I mean, I don't mean in terms of just duration. I mean, actually, sort of retreats and doing quite a lot of solitary retreats. Um, and I'd say that was, I'd say at 19 was when I really started to practice. I think before that, I was just gathering as much things together as I could in terms of knowledge. And, you know, I, I'd say, what I would now call dabbling in meditation was really, I didn't really know what I was doing, I think, to some extent. Yeah. And um, when you're talking about these retreats that you were attending, what kind of things mm. were done at the retreats? Uh, well, it very much depends on what the general program. I mean, sometimes retreats can involve teachings, you know, you sit and you receive a certain amount, a certain type of teachings, and then there might be some instructions and practices that are, that are transmitted. I mean, this is esoteric, but this is really pretty much the idea that there's some transmission that goes from mind to mind. Like their 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 experience of realized mind contacts something in you, plants or seeds. You know, potentially something very profound happening. Um, now, of course. I, I'm not a, a pious Buddhist, so I'm perfectly aware <laughs> and acknowledge the fact there's, a, there's other aspects to that that could be implicated, as in the power of, let, to put it in a sort of English vernacular, power of the priesthood and what they hold and what they offer. You can't do this until you come through me. So I'm quite sure, you know, there's there is some aspects in terms of social engineering or whatever you want to call it. However, there is a difference to that, which is in Tibetan Buddhism, if you go for that ceremony and you do get that one lungs, you can disappear back to your yurt, you know, on the Tibetan plateau and never show your face again. Yeah. So there you could say that in a broad way they're maintaining that that authority and that kind of uh, agency but in another way it's it's far more permissive once you've received it and did you did you train as a monk in in any of these traditions yeah well i mean i in, in the Nyingma tradition that i was uh, connected with originally it was what's called a householder tradition so there are monks and nuns in the Nyingma tradition the specific tradition I was involved with was, was household. So that was when I was sort of 19, 20 that I got. And, and then my monk life uh, started in what's Taju tradition. Um, so yeah, 26, so monk. And 2001, so. Yeah, 2001 stroke two. And the thing is that the reason I'm confused about when it was is because there's like, when did you take your vows? When did you go into ropes? So they're two different things. Uh, I took vows probably six months, seven months before I sort of, you know, had my head shaved and wore the robes. Yeah, yeah. And then I, I, I that was like within a monastery itself. But then after that, I, uh, I went into what's called a, a closed retreat, as in there's just a, a handful of mugs 
and it was shut. There was no one coming in, no one going out. Uh, we had cooks and some assistants that would do some things, but we didn't see them. We never saw them. It, would, it was literally a hatch where the food would be put through, and by the time we came to get the food, and there anymore. And what, what benefit do you think that would have to a person? Uh, or what benefit did it have to you, that kind of isolation and that kind of, you know, environment? Uh, I think, to me, I, I think a lot a lot of the benefit does come from the isolation. Uh, yeah. This is my, this is me speaking. Um, and I felt that as well when I did solitary retreats beforehand. I did a few solitary retreats in my 20s as well. Um, I think... To, to kind of one perspective you could say that's defining Buddhism and especially those schools of Buddhism is that the perspective is what you're looking for is is in your mind streams in a sense. You know, that's one way of talking about it. It's there. It's not you're not making something happen. You're not even cultivating it. The, the 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 task the, the the challenge is to find what's there it's not to make it which is counter to some ideas about meditations the buddha nature so the the nature of mind and the nature of everyone's mind is is that it's buddha and that doesn't mean it's an Indian guy from two and a half thousand years ago sitting inside your head. It's that he 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 woke up to you know the Buddha means awake, awakened. So it's not that he 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 founded or generated it. It's that he he saw the true nature and and used the term the true nature because it's not just the nature of our mind; it's the nature of all phenomena. Uh, it's it's a it's a non-dualistic philosophy. In this sense. It's not that we're of different nature than phenomena. It's, it's all phenomena has true nature, which is limitless, infinite. So for our listeners who may have no experience of this at all, what is Buddhism generally, you know, how, how do you, how would you characterize it? Um, okay. So I, I'll, I'll mix it up with what, what I would say scholarly terms and then more, more sort of analogy just to make it a bit more accelerated kind of description. So Buddhism is what's called a dharmic religion. So dharma means the way. And it means the way in 
in the sense of a path, but it also means the way things are as well. So phenomena can also be re referred to as dharma. Mm -hmm. And it is a religion. Yeah. It's not just a philosophy. Like, I know people like to say that. I'll tell you, anyone who's actually got into it, it's definitely a religion. I mean, anything that talks about what happens to you after you die is a religion. I mean, uh, you know, I, I'd say that's pretty much the... I know that there's like a... I think it's the technical term is that, oh, it has to be a godhead. I think that's a bit more of a, an old, you know, a less sort of globalised modern world made that definition. Nowadays, I'd say... If they if they're telling you what's going to happen to you after you die in some form or another, that's religion. Yeah. So Buddhism is dharmic religion teaches that the uh, the path to your um, fully realized awakening and and. Uh, realization to the deepest reality is essentially down to you understanding your own mind so it's not to do with external salvation it's not to do with there is a conduct aspect to it of course and that, again that's like the public face of buddhism you know right livelihood right yeah there's all sorts of things like Right livelihood, right action, etc., etc. Now that's all a description of living a good life. That's how to hone your life and your conduct and your mind to a point where you're not accruing too much bad karma, and and it's supposed to be conducive to meditation, it's conducive to creating a peaceful life. Because I think the Buddha was you know, a, a very good psychologist, you could say, in some ways. So he, he understood that if you've got all sorts of uh, discord in your life, including aspects of, of our mind to do with feelings of guilt or feelings of, uh, you know, kind of anxiety over something we have done or not done enough, or et cetera, et cetera, then that's going to impede on when you sit down to try and meditate that's going to be affecting you so you know i think from the theravadan point of view of buddhism that's big big uh yeah i'd say emphasis is upon living your life very clear way with a clear set morals and conduct whereas Vajrayana is not so much like it's, doesn't it doesn't say you can do what you like but it's more con, it's it's more concerned with what's your internal experience it's honing your internal experience probably you, you I'd be so bold as to say probably over and above your conduct so there are quite a lot of controversial figures in Vajrayana Buddhism you know, the other thing to say that, that defines the certainly between those two schools is that Theravadan Buddhism's really got this perspective on it that you're going to be working at this for a long time. Many, 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 many lifetimes. Whereas Vajrayana is, you've got the Buddha nature, you just need to, you need to wake up. And so there's this sort of traditional 
number of lifetimes it's often described, which is 16, which is that if you get on the path, 16 lifetimes, you, you cracked it. Now, there's one caveat in that, which is a major caveat, which is if you screw up, you royally screw up. So, I mean, a good, a good analogy, and it's a literal analogy here, is that the, you know, the, the game Snakes and Ladders that I suppose most people will be familiar with if they're in yeah. English-speaking. Yeah. Snakes yeah. and Ladders comes from India, and it's a Buddhist representation of the, 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 the dynamics of rebirth. Wow. I didn't know that. So, so trying to get to the end without sliding down a snake, which is basically screwing up in some way and getting a, going back to the realm. So there's a Tibetan game, which is very similar, uh, which is much more literal. It describes each square gets a description and it's a description of the different types of rebirth and, and the types of perception that come with that. You know, so you'll see water as a fiery, you know, acidy poison. So, you know, like sort of these different ways of experiencing things in that, in the realm of samsara, which is the realm of, I mean, samsara going around in circles pretty much. But the, uh, the implication is that what's People are not recognizing true nature. So throughout their infinite lifetimes, they're screwing up over and over again, it's falling back down, sliding back down the snake. What is the end game for that then? So you go through your 16 lives, and if you don't royally screw it up and slide down the snake at the end, what comes after those 16 lives? I mean, it's a good question because that's often a question that's asked, right? Okay, well, what's the – and that's part of our the way we, we think about things, right? Well, what about what's next, what's next, what's next? Yeah. Uh, it's a bit of an unsatisfactory answer to that, which is it, there's one perspective, which is, well, you, you're – it's your true nature, so you realize it, right? So that, that, that's obviously, like, and that's said as the ultimate destiny of all beings is, is to become Buddha because there's no other aspect of their being that is, um, that is truly them. So everything else is going to fall away. So, you know, over time, there's only one direction you can go in. It's what you are. Um, there's also something called... Uh, Trinlay, right? Trinlay means Buddha karma. Buddha karma means rather than you having your personal karma in a sense, it's your the the the, the function and the dynamic of Buddha nature. It's, it it acts and responds with compassion and wisdom. So that means that instead of you having your own personal karma, you go where beings need you so that and that's including all dimensions and all realms and so if you look at a lot of traditional these traditional tanka paintings you'll see different realms different you often see this um six realm circle and it looks like a big demon's holding it uh, and that's like the wheel it's 
it's what's called the wheel of life and um that's representative and it shows you different realms of existence like hell realms animal realms human realms god realms and in those there'll be a representation of a buddha or a bodhisattva bodhisattva is like a a very highly realized being that's on the path to buddhahood like when i say highly realized i mean you're manifesting in a hundred thousand different dimensions like they're just right. pretty cool yeah. Represent really yeah. it's like yeah. the uh reminds me of the oh what are them people that alan greenfield always goes on about the ascended masters yeah 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 similar principle sort of almost like they've almost reached the level of like full enlightenment yeah. almost and so yeah. are able to help other people who are less far yeah. on that path and that and that idea is that they're being drawn they're being drawn by the force of compassion rather than them going, hmm, what do I, you know, what shall I have to say? It's, it's more to do with uh, where the need is. And they'll, they'll, it's said that they'll manifest. It's almost that's, that's the way it is kind of thing. They'll manifest where they're needed. A bit like fungi will manifest where it's dead. <laughs> that's a yeah. terrible analogy. But it's like, <laughs> it's, it's almost like the potential is always there anywhere where there's beings, where there's mind. That, that it will it will come out almost like a sort of remedial uh, response to suffering. It's the the idea. It's a nice thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it just strikes me that compared to some other religions, and mainly, of course, I'm talking about Christianity here, which is where my principal experience is. It mm. seems a lot less grasping, you know, where. In Christianity, there's this whole idea that you've got to live a very certain way. You know, you've got mm-hmm. to do certain things in order to gain access to heaven, which is some sort of paradise. And that's just kind of where mm-hmm. you end up and just have a great time for the rest of eternity, mm-hmm. I guess. I know I'm oversimplifying things there, but there's mm-hmm. a lot less of this emphasis and this connection between the peaceful life and the compassion at the end of being able to help people when you do go through whatever you have to go through, that then mm-hmm. you become something that then helps others to do the same, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it, it's got a kind of a very strong pedagogical kind of aspect, you know, like you learn, then you pass it down to the next. So, you know, there's a, and that is literally in the tradition as well in terms of teacher and student, you know, that a lineage a lineage of Buddhism that's that's said to be authentic, genuine, is should be able to trace its line back to the Buddha, to the Buddha. So it's it's very different than, for instance, yeah, if you think about places like I don't know, in the Bible Belt or something in, in the southern states, you know, where someone can sort of say, "I've seen the light," or well. That doesn't really happen in Buddhism in the same in the same way, and so it, because there's this kind of very strict emphasis on the lineage and the, and the teacher-student relationship, and that's how uh, that's how those practices and that's how that tradition maintains itself.
could I, as a sort of learning exercise for myself and uh, also hopefully for our listeners, could I ask a few sort of cliched questions about Buddhism? <laughs> and some of these I've actually asked you before, so you, you'll know what you're getting. So that, we, um, you know, to try to either dispel some of these myths or to mm-hmm. claim that they're correct. Mm-hmm. So who is the Buddha? Um, were they a historical figure that we have proof of, like Jesus, or mm-hmm. is it something less material than that? Okay, so there are different perspectives on that, and I don't mean that necessarily in that one's true and one isn't. So, okay, so I'll explain what I mean by that. So, for instance, there is one perspective that he was a human being, that he suffered in human ways, that he was a human being who was born into extreme opulence and power and, you know, opportunities to the point where he'd almost exhausted all of those opportunities and experiences and still not gained satisfaction. So that's one perspective, is that he's an example of someone who at that time, in that place, he was, he was described as essentially having everything you could possibly desire, and yet it didn't quite hit the mark for him. There was still some empty experience that he was having and that's what really propelled him to to renounce everything and disappear off into the forest to meditate for years on it so like there's that perspective there's another perspective that he was uh, enlightened from day one and as he stepped lotus flowers grew in his footsteps and that he was already a buddha from that time and that he was simply there to teach um there's i mean you could even go into sort of hinduism so for instance the buddha in from the point of view of vishnu who's who incarnated in uh many forms from in some sects of hinduism they they see buddha as one of the incarnations of vishnu the ninth believe um, so there's many ways of looking at buddha and one of them is that he was a a prince in modern day nepal who'd had enough of hedonism and and it just wasn't doing it and that he 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 had some sense that there's something deeper something more meaningful to experience in his own life now of course there's controversy to that as well because he left his wife and his newly born child so that's not something that is, if you tell Buddha, if you tell the story of the Buddha from that, you know, emphasizing that point, then everyone would just think that he's some sort of, you know, chauvinist that couldn't be bothered to commit to a family and just ran off into the forest. And I've heard people, people have said that to me. People said that to me when I was a monk. That, oh, he, he just couldn't cope with your family life. Yeah, I think people have that tendency, don't they, to kind of almost put like a, a modern framework yes. on something which is it, it it's not you can't apply that to it because it's it's no it's it doesn't so make totally sense different isn't it it's not like that's not the yeah that's not the point of the story no it, it's no. not you're looking at it from the wrong angle there you know yeah and also from someone that was in his position that doesn't make sense anyway 
he was a he was predestined to be the king of that you know of the of the Shakya clan, which was a huge area of India. He's not really going to be worrying about you know whether he can sort of pay his council taxes. It wasn't like he'd have mundane concerns. And to be frank, he probably wouldn't have even had that much to do with uh, you know family life in that way. He would have been too busy training for his his role. Um, but yeah, of course, that's the other perspective: is that his life has a, just a mythological punch to it. You know, it's symbolic of the the journey of each person to because there's there's these three stages he went through when he left his palace for the first time in his life, where he he encountered old age, sickness, and death. And he and his father, you know, so the story goes, kept all of those experiences away from him. So there were no old people that worked there. He not he was never told about death. There were no people sick that were allowed to be around him ever. You know, now you could analyze that and go, well, what that's ridiculous. Everyone gets a cold or whatever. He must have he must have experienced it. But in another way, it's like would well, that it, that's got a mythological point to it. Which is yeah. that he just was mollycoddled basically into a position where he didn't really experience suffering to any you know, significant and it was only when he got out of the confines of his palace that he encountered the realist the the, the real kind of human dukkha you know suffering and I, I think it's to me i always find it interesting that that was a walled city right? and paradise literally translates you know the eden translates as the wall garden and there's something about that you know, the loss of innocence to 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 break through what what seemed like your world what seemed like a and then you encounter through suffering you cannot once you've witnessed it you cannot me and hein have talked before about how across a number of different things there seems to be this idea of kind of almost breaking out of your comfort zone breaking mm. out of your structure in order mm. to grow and yeah this this seems just like another example of that which is you know it's frankly terrifying and i hate the idea but it, <laughs> yeah. it is i i i suspect there's 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 there really is something to that it's one of them ideas where and i'm sure a lot of people can relate to this it's not just me where you love the idea of it in theory, but in practice, it's absolutely terrifying. And yes, kind of, and should I think be that's, in a way. Yeah, yeah, because then it wouldn't yeah. it wouldn't have the effect. Yeah. But it's one of them things where I, I feel like with what what limited understanding I have of of Buddhism and um, you know particularly kind of meditation as well. Kind of, it's one of these things where sort of Western secular twenty first century people are just catching up to it like mm -hmm. as in, there's a lot of things now that people advise or that are talked about or that you know are kind yeah. of even commonplace like how meditation even in the last sort of what 20 30 years meditation mm -hmm. yoga you know meditation all, mindfulness yeah. yeah and it's like it it's, almost it, almost kind of takes the spirituality out of it when in reality it's kind of it's evolved from a spiritual tradition yeah i mean i think i think that's like the west likes to sort of think that it's got this sort of ability to be mechanistic about these things and just sort of 
reduce it down to its active principles and take the lineage, take the yeah. heart out and just go, yeah. oh, I'll just do this, you know. Yeah. I'd say that there's a very famous uh, figure around in the public nowadays who does that, you know, like he's kind of like he's he's putting on his own sort of flavor of meditation and, and kind of saying, oh, you know, you don't need to believe in all that sort of Buddhist stuff. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, uh, that encountering with suffering is, all, I'd say it's universal really, because if you think about, you know, that's the shamanic initiation as well, right? You know, I mean, there's many traditions where that young lad gets woken up in the middle of the night sleeping with his siblings, younger siblings and his mum, and is dragged out by men in masks and beaten up. Yeah, and then he yeah. fights and has to go through that, you know, absolutely terrifying struggle. And I think the – and this is the crossover, I would say, with therapy, Buddhism, and that type of tradition, is that really, you know, the challenge is to – encounter uncertainty the realm of uncertainty and your relationship with uncertainty and start to uh, find a way to navigate that world rather than under the mother's wing to put it in a kind of you know figurative um, you know I mean so much therapeutic processes pointing out that, you know, someone's approach, someone's lifestyle, someone's way of thinking is all about maintaining a hold on certainty. And, you know, with along with that, you could use terms like control and, you know, the familiar. Yeah, literally my entire life, basically. <laughs> yeah. just, just, you've just been describing me for a couple of minutes and I'm starting to feel uncomfortable. <laughs> I mean, a lot of, right. again, the Western life is about this fixed, almost routine and the illusion of control and the illusion of certainty. Mm. You, you know, you do one thing, another thing happens. Mm -hmm. When we know from living life, just from yeah. the experience we have of life, that it is pretty much pure uncertainty. Yeah. There's certain things that you think will probably happen, but mainly every day you have to contend with an element of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. that the way that Western life, I just don't think it prepares us for this properly at all. I think that mm. everything is about this set result. And I think that's a reason why so many people find uncertainty so scary. Yes. And I think that that's, like you say, it's coming about from kind of an old school Cartesian mechanistic sort of perspective on things that is deterministic. Or if, I, if, I, if I have enough information, I can work out what's going to happen or, or what to do to control this. Whereas, you know, I think that a lot of the, the Eastern traditions are about, and, and to be fair, I'd, I think that in whatever we term as Western I mean, even, even what we usually term as Western traditions, kind of Eastern or Middle yeah. Eastern or something. Um, but um, I think that that, you know, when you, when we had the scientific revolution, obviously what we were, what was communicated and what was assumed, even if it wasn't being communicated by some of those scientists 
was, oh, we can work it all out. You know, we, we found the, you know, we found the key here. You know, we don't need that religion stuff. We don't, uh, you know, uncertainty is just a matter of time and we'll have this all nailed. And when you remove what I would say is a place marker or a representative place marker for uncertainty and the unknown, i.e. God time, and say, no, that's not there. You know, that, that's not going to help you. We are literally just in a chaotic universe and uh, all we've got are some of these kind of understandings, limited understandings of physics biology etc um then actually that just throws people into utter chaos and oblivion in many ways it always amuses me when science looks at that and you get things like chaos theory which is basically saying you know that yes you can start out with predictable elements but things will descend slowly into disorder and chaos but don't worry about that because that's just chaos theory. We've got it solved. That's science. We've given chaos it a theory. name. Yeah, we've yeah. given it a name, yeah, exactly. so that's okay. Yeah. yeah. But do you think, um, Roger, that perhaps we could get to a stage in in sort of Western secular life where it almost kind of comes back round to to being more spiritual and to being more in line with that way of thinking? I think it would be good. Yeah, I mean, I Not definitely helpful, think it'll be good. You know. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the 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 hump to get over is uh, the the sort of mechanistic reductionist idea. Now, the problem concept and approach. Now, the problem with it is is that it works for those things. So, if I want to build a shuttle, if I want to build the, the most efficient car, or whatever, then I need to refer to that type of you know, scientific, whatever yeah. you want to call it, perspective. But when we're talking about, I would say, broadly speaking, the mind, that those those sorts of um, – it's often what comes with that is a binary type of thinking, like a removal of nuance and a removal of – well, a removal of uh, uncertainty. Now, that also comes with a de- devaluation of – aspects of us our minds that's connected with intuition and yeah. you know you could you know we could term it as the fall of the goddess etc you know like anything that is seen as not very much kind of nailed down with facts and number and measure and it's kind of like uh, devalued and dismissed and i think that the revolution is is going to come through revaluation and appreciation of you know, from a neurological point of view, I would say the right hemisphere of the brain, right? The, yeah. the thing, the part of us that's responsible for uh, understanding context and relationship and the whole kind of gestalt rather than, you know, an eye for detail and control and, and writing things down in a systemized way. But that will only come through, the, and the, I would say the tricky part of that is that that tends to only really come through each individual's path. It's not really something that you can kind of, if you try and enforce that or make people have that experience, you've just gone back into the left hemisphere and trying to control everything. So yeah, it has to be, yeah, it really is. You know, I think you're always dealing in paradox when you start to talk about things that are 
an essential nature for the mind and spiritual uh, subject matter. Yeah, it's like um, the, the whole idea that in, in some cultures that there's not like a, a clear difference between what's dreamed and what's real. Mm. I say that yeah. in scare quotes, you know, it's like, but now nowadays and certainly it's very much like the idea of fantasy and imagination and dreams are over there and they're not real yeah. and they're not relevant. Mm. And then, mm. you know, what we see in the supposedly real world is, and, and, and I think that, yeah, like you say, it's that, that, that blurring between the boundaries actually mm. could end up becoming beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's all, it's all, that was just a dream or that's a figment of yeah. your imagination yeah. or you're just imagining things. Really yeah. dismissive ways of discussing yes. what is such a huge part of our internal yeah. lives. Roger, what do you think dreams are? Do you have some thoughts on dreams and their importance? Or... I, I, I think... I think we're in a more receptive mind state when we're dreaming. So it's not to say that there aren't aspects, you know, uh, psychology and, and subjective experience that are informing those. So of course, you know, the content of them will be, you could call psychologically, you know, ascertained, you know, you could possibly work out what's going on with analysis, yeah. it's, however, I also think that there is, you know, uh, the realm of the archetypes, the the the, the intuited dimensions, etc., are also affecting it. They're not simply, um, yeah, it's not the tape playing itself back over and over again through, you know, various permutations and combinations of experiences that we've there can potentially be other things that come in and that will include things like precognition or you know, shared dreams as well. You know, I mean, that's yeah. definitely a thing that yeah, yeah. we've experienced with people. You know, our, our minds aren't as separate as we think they are. I say that that is also something that has come out of my, my experiences. Say actually that comes out of my experiences with therapy as much as meditation, you know, like when you're really sitting with someone, and really fo focus with them. They will say things, or, or you'll say things, and that's just exactly what they were thinking. Or you know, images start to be transmitted without you actually kind of verbalizing it, or at least you, they get confirmed after they've been transmitted. It's, so dreams, I would say, is, you know, they're a manifestation of psychology mixed with. supernatural phenomena yeah i mean i guess by their very nature it's almost it's almost like a trick question because mm -hmm. it's almost like by their very nature you shouldn't be able to describe them because we almost it's like uh, i'm trying to think of a way to word yeah, this i mean it's like you, they're in the they're in the realm of the indescribable aren't they yeah and you just mm. almost kind of need to not impose too much of a structure on what they are mm -hmm. and just like yeah. try and like almost like in terms of like deciphering them it's almost like you shouldn't try and decipher them exactly it's more just like a feeling like yeah mm. like grasping them too hard is going to choke them mm. yeah. yeah 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 it's like um it's like watching a david lynch film and trying to apply like an a, 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 
analysis as you would reading a a story or watching a more linear film or whatever like Mm -hmm. there are are some pieces of art which are to be experienced through intuition yeah like sort of ineffable yeah yeah exactly kind of like a tarkovsky kind of you know like you just yeah what can you say yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like, it's just like some things almost that you you just got to kind of feel them on that level, and I feel like yeah, that's that's something which is like massively underrated, and yet mm. some of what you're saying in terms of that the, the way that you're describing the more various things like that you said tonight, are kind of bringing me back to that approach to things, not just to dreams or to films, but things in general. Mm. It's like a whole. It's a complete disposition, I think. And it's like, you know, it's connected with Tao and Taoism as well, I would say, because there's a, there's, a, there's a huge sort of emphasis on the teaching, in the teachings of Taoism, which is uh, implying that you can step back. You know, I mean, there's literally verses in the Tao Te Ching about sort of step back from doing, you know, allow things to unfold sometimes being you know, involved and that that's devalued, even though it's funny because, you know, we all have an experience of that because what do we do when we go to sleep? You know, there's, there's no time actually, neurologically speaking, when your mind is more active than when you lie down in your unconscious, which is always thinks quite paradoxical. So it's so essential to not do. And an analogy that I often use in therapy is, to do with you know a gardener and, and looking after a garden like there's certain things that he's charged with doing aspects of order that might be part of his role ultimately what he needs to do you know a large percentage of the time is just let things do what they need to do and unfold as they unfold you know his job is not to go over to each flower and tear open the petals and if he did he would ruin the entire process. And I think that in the West, the, the, the application of science and, and, you know, in many ways, understanding the body, I mean, even, even treatments for certain mental health problems, you know, like, and, and sort of pathologies in regards to things like, um, you know, serotonin uptake, SSRIs, you know, if you look at some of the, the the logic behind some of those things, this it's fairly coarse. It's like, okay, there's too much excitatory, you know, uh, phenomena going on in that cortex. Let's calm it down. So my metaphor that I use sometimes when people ask me about medication is the 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 brain is like an ecology of of interaction. So neurons are all interacting with each other, massive, you know, a huge scale and sort of number. So let's imagine a playground with primary school children in it, and average like 300, 350 children playing there. Now, if they start to fall over and cut their knee or something and get injured, you could identify the problem as, oh, they're playing too much. So let's stop them from playing. And you would be guaranteed there'd be no more cut knees. But what's the real long-term result of 
350 children that spend time together each day never playing. There's going to be a lot of negative fallout from it, right? Now, if they were falling off a wall and, you know, endangering themselves to a horrendous degree, it might be worth stopping them from playing whilst that's right until you work out some other way. So I would say the same thing about a lot of medications. Like, yes, for some people, when the, when the, the situation is that dire, it's worthwhile medicating them. But if if you're if you're just having some negative experience, I don't want to sort of uh, trivialize people's experience of anxiety. But my point being is that it's just too readily applied and and. The understanding and the implications of what those things can do to someone's mind and brain is, isn't necessarily, or at least historically, I'd say a lot a long time ago, wasn't necessarily considered. It was just, these are the symptoms, let's stop the symptoms without really having an appreciation of what it might do to someone. Yeah, I mean, it can be yeah, quite really. lazy, can't it? It can be sort of, in terms of how a lot of doctors are at the moment, it is very much... Uh, you know, oh, let's just give them some medication then because it's yeah. far easier and quicker. Um, yeah. Than treating the underlying issues. Yeah. Yeah, and treating the person. By your analogy, what you'd want to do is almost like teach the kids to play in such a way where they didn't fall and hurt the knee or, you know, mm-hmm. something yeah, like that. Yeah, work but, out what's um, going on as a whole rather yeah, than whilst just... whilst accepting that sometimes kids fall and hurt their knees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't avoid. You can't avoid. I mean, it's going back to the suffering thing, isn't it? You can't avoid suffering mm. because then you end mm. up becoming too soft and actually not mm. progressing. This actually brings me on to the next myth I was going to ask you about. And that oh, yeah. is a lot of people, when they think of Buddhism, they say, oh, Buddhism, isn't that just saying that life is suffering or life is sorrow and that kind oh, yeah. of thing? Is that something yeah. that you hear a lot? Yeah. Yeah, all the time. Yeah. Um, is it true? And no. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, So there's the four uh, noble truths in Buddhism. So the first noble truth is referred to in English as truth of suffering. It doesn't say life is suffering. It says, and the Buddha said, you will not be able to not suffer whilst you're embodied in a human, well, in in any form. It's inescapable. Suffering is inescapable. However, he didn't say life is Because... There are teachings about, you know, people being joyful and being happy and those aren't things to necessarily avoid. There's a famous story of a family who were and and reasonably joyful after they lost uh, a member of their family and people were kind of, why, how can you be happy after you've just lost a member of your family? And they said, because every moment we spent together was embraced. And we never really spoke bad words to each other and we 
we appreciate each other. Da, 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 da. But my point being is that that was being told. That story is in the tradition and a, and a story that's told, a teaching story that's in Buddhism to emphasize the fact that, you know, you can be happy and experience joy, and that's a good thing by how you treat others. So if joy and happiness were seen as being meaningless in Buddhism, then it wouldn't be mentioned in stories like that. Um, suffering is seen as something that is unavoidable and needs to be accepted, really. So it's not something to, it's not an indication that you're doing anything wrong other than you haven't realized that you're a Buddha. <laughs> you know, other than that, you know, you're not failing at life because you're suffering. And that, you know, again, there's a crossover to, into therapy. I'd say that that's in a conversation with clients where they've come, they've come to the conclusion that they, there's something wrong with them because they're experiencing anxiety and depression. Whereas I would say, well, that's the nature of being an intelligent, awake human being that will have those experiences. Now, whether they become chronic and intense to the degree that you can't live is another question. To, to have experiences of anxiety and depression just means that you're you're not failing yeah and i mean when we're talking about life being suffering and so mm. on it's ignoring what the opposite of that is because within all things i contain their opposite and so mm. i guess if you're suffering then you've got to know what joy is or else you mm. wouldn't know that you were suffering um, yeah, uh, you know, you, you're. What's the poem? Uh, your 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 sorrow is the cup that that, that is carved out to contain your joy. Or something, I can't. Remember, I'm paraphrasing, but basically, the point being in the in the poem is that you know when you're crying or when you're sobbing for something, you're often sobbing in contrast and in relation to the amount of joy that you've experienced in some ways and what might have been lost. And vice versa, you know, you can joy, you can cry tears of joy, knowing, you know, or reflecting back on how hard things have been in the past. And now, you know, we've come out and the grey skies have cleared, etc. You know, like often those experiences are, they're present at the same table in a way. That suffering is not a failure. I don't mean go after it. Also, yeah, it's, it's basically don't turn off. If we're using a, an analogy of, or a metaphor of driving down a motorway, if you suffer, that's not an indication that you should turn off services. Keep going. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't. I've also used that metaphor in meditation as well. People, people will often. Oh, I'm thinking too much. I'm not doing it right. It's, it doesn't matter whether you're thinking. Not the uh, the emphasis is not to stop your thoughts. The emphasis is to change your relationship. Yeah, because again, it's it's people trying to imply, and when I say people, I mean me, uh, trying to apply control, isn't yeah. it? You know, it's that whole yeah. like I must control everything. But it's it's hard. Yeah, it's. I know that's a really obvious thing to say, but it's like. I think for a lot of people, like the 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 instinct is there's a problem. I must solve mm. it. And, you know, I must solve it by 
using this method which will stop the pain yeah. or whatever but it's but, it's like you say it's sometimes not that yeah simple. i would say that um, the, the thinking to the degree that happens in you know i don't i don't like to just use the term the west necessarily i would say nowadays it's much more you could say post society approach to life okay which is that um thinking like that uh, is a type of addiction definitely it, it, yeah it, you know if we're thinking about what yeah. addiction is you know like, often anxiety is called sibling addiction right so, i mean if you think about the the act of moving towards and grasping at your particular you know style of addiction is essentially i'll do that to avoid this feeling this present or coming up yeah. so you move yeah. towards yeah. that as a way of masking the feeling or delaying the feeling that is coming up now i'd say that anxiety is sometimes described as the sibling of addiction because instead of looking for a sort of something that's stimulating dopamine you go towards the uh the problem solving prefrontal cortex approach which is there's some way i can think my way out of this experience and in order to avoid this yeah. experience i'm going to i'm going to use that part of my mind and so people just like will ping pong around in their head all day all night or whatever that is i was discussing this with a friend just today because i that is like that characterizes me perfectly because <laughs> i i sort yeah. of if i i find myself sort of feeling anxious or whatever, my instinct is, well, I, I know what, I'll just take on a big project because that's <laughs> yeah. bound to make me feel better, you know, yeah. when I, well, actually what I'm doing is just crowding yeah. my mind out because I'm addicted to that feeling of like, let's solve the next thing. Yes. Control, Control. Yeah. but also yeah. the problem solving, you know, I need a problem to solve because I can't mm. solve the other ones, yeah. you know, yeah. so I'll just get a new problem to solve. And then mm. if I can't solve that one, I'll get a new problem to solve. And then mm. you get these addictions. It's quite a powerful addiction and it's not one because of the society that we're in and it being a kind of capitalist society and yeah. you've got to do this you've got to do that you've got to have your hustle you've got to be up yeah, until yeah. two in the two a.m and then you get up at five a.m when the sun's up and then you got to exercise and then you got to start like your pre-breakfast hustle you know and all that mm. sort of thing it's not it's almost encouraged and that is mm. that's very much the end game i think of late stage capitalism when we're all dying of lack of sleep and mm. desperate to do something which generates whatever you know whether it be money whether it be satisfaction in air quotes attention mm -hmm. um, mm. or just dopamine release yeah yeah I, I definitely think that there's this sort of it's it's also seen almost as exclusive as a state of being an awake human being that's how it's almost perceived in the West. Yeah, like, very much a badge of honor. If I'm awake, I have to be thinking. Otherwise, what would I be doing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, well, yeah, yeah. how could I be aware of something unless I was thinking about it? And there is this sort of, uh, it's sort of seen as synonymous with being aware. And I really don't, that's not my experience at all, that you can have all sorts of types of awareness without categorizing and, and, and putting it into framing it in language now of course the part of our mind that does that will always do that you know like that 
yeah, we can get neurological and say, you know, your broker's error and your vernix error is always going to be, you know, processing language and, and, and kind of suggesting terms and all the rest of it. Yes, it will, but that's not where you need to be, you know. And that's the thing is that there's this sense of identity that people have that's so fixed upon self-talk and they're in a dialogue. So they think without it, yeah, I mean, that's Cartesian, right? I think therefore I am, which I would say is like, in a sense, that's, I mean, there's loads of nuanced, different interpretations of what you meant by that. But in a way, it doesn't even matter what Descartes meant by that. It matters how it was interpreted and absorbed by the people. I mean, the implication's inescapable, isn't it, of what, of yes. what that is? It's there in the sentence itself. Yes, it's, exactly. It's exactly yeah. it. So in a way, if he didn't mean that, it's his fault. Yeah, <laughs> he's got it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, it kind of brings me on to the next thing I was going to ask you about, the next yes. kind of myth, although I don't know how I'm going to phrase this one, but I'm right. just going to put it out there, the concept of the Tao. Uh, the Tao yeah. is, is nothingness, or the Tao is infinity, or the Tao is God, or the Tao is love. Mm-hmm. What what for our listeners and for me and Buckley as well? What is the Tao in in the best way that you can describe it? And I mean, obviously, the, the answer is read the Tao Te Ching, and and that, <laughs> yeah. that tells you what yeah. it is. But this, yeah. it, uh, it's such an important concept. It's such a simple concept. And the problem with it is, which is kind of contained within the book itself, is that if you try and think and characterize it, mm. you're already losing your grip of what it actually is. Yeah, and. It's, um, I'd say that, I'd say the same if you start to talk about the deeper aspects of Buddhism as well, is that you end up talking in paradox, talking nonsense, you know. Um, And my, if I was going to sort of struggle to try and articulate what the Tao is, which, you know, I I, I suppose I would like to say as well that I'm not, I don't consider myself to be, an expert on either of these things. However, I have spent 35 years looking into it. That's all I would say. So what That's I would... than me. So I'll well, take a word. So, uh, and um, I'd say the, the Tao is what perceive, what permits form and action, but it's not form and action. Uh, what yeah it's sometimes referred to as the great mother and interestingly shunyata buddhism which means emptiness not nothingness emptiness as in without form is also referred to as the great mother and often described in very similar ways to the Tao, or not not exactly the same very similar and you know something to point out with that is that in china free communist China, Taoist and Buddhist shrines and temples were often in the same building and often in the same room. It would literally be the opposite ends of each room, and the person that looked after one would look after the other. So Taoism and Mahayana Buddhism especially, very, uh, there's a huge overlap. Um, so I, I would say that Taoism, personally, I would say that Taoism probably, if I was going to be <laughs> a bit whatever we could call it, kind of 1970s Californian about it, you could say it is love. 
it's it, it's formless yet it permits all yeah it binds everything together you know it it's yeah there's a verse in the Tao Te Ching that sort of says yeah, I'm paraphrasing here but it's, it's essentially if you screw up if and this is so counter to our experience of Western Christian traditions right if you screw up and make a mistake you will be forgiven you know wow not not you have to do this or you have to do that you have to accept so and so as a bridge to god and then you'll be forgiven blah 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 blah, blah. it's just no you'll be forgiven <laughs> that's yeah. it you know yeah. there's no requirement you'll be forgiven it's it's funny because you you've mentioned that god as well you know i, th- I think in if I'm getting right, what you were saying in a kind of contrast to as in the Christian view of, I mean, like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I mean, I, I'll just say I was raised Catholic. I, I say this in every episode, but um, every single episode, <laughs> even when it's not relevant, okay. I just say it anyway. Yeah. Uh, but like, there's a, there's a huge tradition of punishment in in mm-hmm. that. So even just to say it in the way that you phrased that, you know, if you screw up, you will be forgiven. It feels mm. weirdly liberating. It feels yeah. like suddenly counter to everything that was instilled in me as a kid that mm. everything's going to be all right you know? yeah yeah and it's not a, it's not a transaction it's not something you have to qualify you have to work to it's that you'll be forgiven you know like it's not it's not what you are so why not you know and and i would say i see i've seen that that played out in those in people that are within and growing up in those sort of, you know, people who've had uh, family members murdered, uh, campaigning for the uh, the release, or not, maybe not the release, but certainly, you know, the, the uh, not for the perpetrator to be executed and to be mm-hmm. treated well, you know. Like real, like, you know, like whatever anyone might say about, oh, you know, religion's trust controlling and all that kind of stuff. Like real examples of people that have fully embodied that, you know, that the idea of punishment, the idea, you know, all these, all these ideas of punishment, retribution, qualifying yourself, etc. So much of that, I think, comes out of the Judeo-Christian framework. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and people see the Buddha like that. Oh, you know, why? Yeah, but some, sometimes people have said to me. What, they ask about karma or whatever. And they go, "Well, that's not fair." And I'm like, "Well, it's not designed. It's not. It's not like. It's not about it being fair. It's literally just that this happens, then that happens, and it's, it's just yeah. shit happens, man. You know? I mean, that's in Buddhism. I mean, when we're talking about God in, in contrast to the Tao, since breaking out, because obviously I haven't practiced Catholicism for 20 years, mm-hmm. but it my mind is built on that framework. Mm. And since, particularly since starting VASE, trying to move out of that closed framework whilst mm. acknowledging the fact that it's always going to be there in me, you know, there's always going to be that element instilled mm-hmm. in me, is to try mm. to understand the concept of God a bit better. And mm. my concept of it moves closer towards the Tao, and that's one of the reasons I really mm. enjoyed the Tao Te Ching. And mm. the idea of, because... I'm never, yeah, I, I believe in God. You know, I'm, not, I'm never going to, not, I don't think, but mm. I don't believe in the Christian idea of God anymore. Mm-hmm. I see it much more as this flow, this eternal thing, mm-hmm. you know, almost like you were saying, the great mother, but more like 
the position I'm shifting to is this idea of love, I guess. And, mm. you know, almost like, and I think we've talked about this before, Roger, like the, the background state of things is love, you mm. know, and the, 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 the natural state when you take away indoctrination and dogmatism mm-hmm. of a person mm-hmm. is love mm-hmm. and joy and happiness, mm-hmm. you know, which, which goes very much against what we were talking about life being suffering and so on. You know, I think that if you, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm think probably I'm, I'm just repeating back to you something that you've said to me before, but I think if you strip away a lot of these external influences, what you get closer to is this mm-hmm. joy or happiness mm-hmm. or this innate love, which is in, all of us, but from what Mm. you're saying, I extrapolate that to be in everything. Yeah. Like it's, um, it's the, it's the nature of everything is, and so much of that is to do with, well, let's say so much to do with the appreciation is to do with the perspective that we can have. So you can, I think you can have an experience of phenomena where it's almost like that biscuit tin, that clock and that remote controller arguing with each other about their position in space and time. You know, this is like, there's an aggressive aspect to that with, with a negative perspective, with a self-loathing perspective, whereas a loving perspective and a, and a, you know, let's say somebody has embodied that you were just describing, you know, the negativity falls away. And those those inner qualities of positivity, love, connection, appreciation, empathy, etc., come out. Then that gets reflected in the way that you perceive your environment. And I think that that that's that's a lesson that can often be learned with people, you know, when they encounter psychedelics. Is, you know, like the the set and setting. You know, you go in with a negative mindset or an angry mindset, or people around you that are away. And it can completely make your experience hellish. Yeah. But do the opposite, and it can be you can you can go to heaven, right? Temporarily, I would say. Not that that's a, a reason to do it every day, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's interesting you you bring up the psychedelic thing, and obviously, I, I guess there's kind of parallels there when you think about the idea of like you know enlightenment mm-hmm. and and sort of the idea of. Um, from my understanding of Buddha being someone who has seen through the mm-hmm. illusion, yeah, is that yeah? So seen through yeah. the illusion of of and, and and you know you hear that said about uh, psychedelics as being you know a means by which people can see through the illusion and see reality mm-hmm. as it really mm-hmm. is. Um, so I wondered, with with that in mind, what are your thoughts on simulation theory and the idea that we could be living in a simulation from the point of view of Buddhism. And because it seems to me that they're almost kind of similar, but then you think simulation theory implies that there was something which created the simulation, which perhaps is a bit at odds with. Yeah. And it's kind of, there's an infinite regress of that, right? Like, so how would that ever end? Yeah. Like, uh, um, yeah. Yes, there's definitely. Okay, so my, my, my interpretation of the simulation theory is that it's basically the left hemisphere trying to work out 
what they it stumbled on upon phenomena having an illusionary illusory quality so you know okay. like the, the quantum physics and all the rest you know all, all of the sort of like yeah late and early uh, 20th century etc you know it was come to the conclusion that uh, can i swear on here oh um, yeah please do yeah oh right okay we don't know what the fuck any of this is but so like yeah, yeah. yeah. we know how it acts on, on our level to some degree and we know to some degree what composite parts are but then if you start to look at the nature of those composite parts where are they we don't there's yeah. some vague electrical fields that we don't even really understand so i mean and that i'd say that's also a big part of buddhist philosophy is that you you analyze phenomena in that same way in, in thought experiments you know to the point where if you can't isolate one how can you talk about many if you don't understand what if you can't actually identify a tree if you go up to it in a forest then how can you say you've got a forest you know it's like none of it it's a bit like going up to a, going up to a tree in mine what's that game called the kids play minecraft minecraft is it yeah 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 so like you know let's say ostensibly looks like a tree but then when i go up to it it's just made of pixels and then what are those pixels made of made of light and what are those like you know what's that light it's just frequency of something don't really know what it is you know so if i can't isolate that down as a tree how can i say here's a forest it's all it's all sort of it's empty really and that's that's one way of explaining what emptiness what buddhism is referring to as emptiness i don't know if i answered your question yeah no i mean i i guess i guess what i'm interested in is like almost these kind of intersection points and i think you 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 answered it really well because you you brought up the quantum physics mm-hmm. thing as well and it's like there seems to be sort of this a number of things kind of all meeting in like a similar mm. conclusion it's just that the buddhists kind of got there first by a good number of centuries you know things that we're only just kind of conceptualizing now but that's assuming i don't know i mean i currently I currently feel like we live in a simulation. I, I, I don't know. I just, I, I just, I really feel like we do sometimes. But I don't know that, like you say, it could just be my interpretation based on. Uh, yeah, sorry. So that's where I language. went off track slightly. So, so yes, the, the, the simulation thing. I mean, in a way, from the point of view of Buddhism, it doesn't matter because the simulation would have the same nature. The simulants, is that would that be the, the, the term? The people the people that are controlling the simulation, for instance, they would still be yeah. subject to uh the same, the same nature like of phenomena. Yeah. So yeah. just as an interesting kind of it's not a science, but an interesting illustration, often uh this is used by younger Tibetan Lama teachers to, to explain what is this kind of idea of this progressive path in Mahayana Buddhism where you go on the first level of Bodhisattvahood up to the 10th and then Buddhahood. So you go through all those things. And the first level is often explained as in the film The Matrix, Neo sees all the coding dropping down. That's yeah. supposed to be what they describe as like synonymous with under- like recognising the nature of phenomena. It's like you suddenly see what it really is 
And then, of course, that gave, in, within the film, for instance, that gives him the ability to be able to manipulate it and be able to, to control it to yeah. some degree and, and control himself within that. And that is very much reflected in this, the, the accounts you hear about, you know, various uh, figures in Buddhist history that would put their hand through rock or knock on space and make it sound like tin and fly around and do all this. Is that an aim of Buddhism, though, is to be able to control it? Is that an aim or a goal at all? It's, it, it's, it's what's called siddhis in, in Sanskrit. Siddhis means uh, accomplishments. But what, it, what it's really referring to is that they are side effects of the ability, the abilities that come with one-pointed focus and meditation. So, you know, this one-pointed focus, which is, you know, said to bring all sorts of qualities, abilities. And then on top of that, being able to perceive the nature of phenomena more accurately, if you like, or more, more in line or aligned with how things really are, will give one abilities. And the, the other thing to say about that is that non-dualistic principle is often part so that the, the the what from the point of view of buddhism is the fabricated perception fabricated experience that you are separate from the outer elements becomes dissolved so that your your internal elements are connected to the external and that means you know you can walk through fire and not be affected and fly etc so i mean obviously they that sounds pretty pretty wild and sounds but cool. there's, uh, that's fine it's just right, <laughs> right. right. okay yeah. i mean that there's lots of um there's lots of accounts of, and i'm talking about modern accounts and odd things like you know i mean I've, yeah, I mean, I'll say a couple of things about my own experience. I'd say I've definitely had, you know, some people that know thinking, um, doing funny things that you wouldn't think would be possible, like reaching down a hole that's like six foot long with one arm and getting what's at the bottom of it. And you've seen that happen? Yeah. Wow. Like, so obviously wow. you can't see it, yeah. right? And I think often they do, often, because there's there's a quite strict rules about what you're not supposed to show and talk about in public. So obviously you can't see. I couldn't see his arm, right? So I can't see that his arm did go six foot long. But what, other, what else is there to think? Like yeah. If someone reaches down oh, and their arm's, what, like three foot long, probably longest of say that's pretty long for an arm um other other things like yeah i mean if it, I, I get the feeling that this your 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 channel is kind of partly to do with this sort of thing so i'll just throw in a couple of things i mean i remember one time driving a, a llama to the airport he's quite famous for what's called yogic song so he would spring into spontaneous yogic song and they'd be like teaching, to so be sort of teaching as he's singing, but just come out. He's very, uh, 
eccentric kind of character as well. He'd, he'd be talking, he'd be teaching. And this is like, a, he's, he's a Kempo. A Kempo is like someone who's, who's basically like a doc, doctor of philosophy in Buddhism. And to a, a insanely highly studied degree. So they won't have text with them to teach. They'll just talk about it and say, first, you know, we're talking huge texts. They'll say, first, this line, that, and they know exactly what it says and they'll teach like, and that's not even what I'm about to talk about. So anyway, I was driving into an airport at like three in the morning. He's doing his yogic songs and in Tibetan Buddhism, he's, he's, Beings called marmos, and they, they protectors and messengers. Let's say, sort of interdimensional beings to some degree. And uh, I noticed when I look out the window, there was a barn owl. The, the white, the barn owls are the white ones. So they're yes, basically yeah. white, aren't they? You know, with, I know the lights tan on. Yeah. And it, he was yeah. flying next to the car. Because yeah, we this was on the way to uh, Edinburgh Airport, I believe, if I remember rightly. I'm talking sort of 25 years ago. But, um, so it was quite a lot of windy country roads in the Scottish, you know, lowlands. Yeah. And uh, then I noticed there was an on, on the other side of it. And by the time he sort of finished his song, there were like five owls flying next to him. <laughs> and, oh, and, and he just laughed. He's just laughing, going, yeah, <laughs> That's what he kept saying. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That was it. That's we've we've had some like cool stories on this podcast, but that's been one of my favourite. Definitely, that's like wow. That's so cool. One owl. One owl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be fine, but yeah, they were like, owls, yeah, it was like, like a community. Yeah. I mean, that's irrefutable, isn't it? You know, <laughs> like, yeah, just count the yeah. Owls. I was like kind of driving, looking at it, like, what is going on? But it was, yeah. I ended up. Yeah, you can't science. I ended one. up just sitting there laughing, you know, driving down the road. I didn't know what else to think, really, you know, other than this has just, just got so bizarre. And because he was quite a bizarre character, like, he'd, he'd be teaching and he'd sometimes just stop and look up and go, yeah. And then carry on as if someone was talking to him. Uh-huh. And I, I'm not saying that's what was the happening. Yeah, maybe, yeah. yeah. Maybe the owls are like communicating. Uh, yeah, many things like that. I mean, one of there's a there's a teacher that's around at the moment. He's quite famous, quite well known. He's on the sort of because he's quite young. He's my age, um, and I remember he, he came out for a ceremony, and they wear these uh, for certain ceremonies and. and initiations there's like a black mask sworn, so you can't see through it this was in relatively in public i mean it was in on the grounds of a monastery but it was relatively and uh they put this kind of kindling setup quite a, a long way i'd say a good certainly wasn't less than 50 meters it was probably more and he sat on this sort of Tibetan style chair side in the grounds of the monastery and they pass him this bow and arrow, like a traditional Tibetan bow and arrow, and they light the end, the flaming arrow, and he had it down sort of, they lit it as, you know, the guy crouched next to him, so they lit it with him pointing it at the ground. And he, without hesitation, just lifted it and went, like, 
flung it off straight into the fireplace. Wow. With no, you know, there was no moment to calculate it or think, you know, better than any Olympic archer I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, Like lots of things like that. Yeah, it just sounds like a, like some kind of... like using the force. Yeah, that that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, he was quite a character. He sort of, he, he, he ran off into the Himalayas for years without, he just went and just lived in sub-zero conditions for like, you know, quite a few years. He's living the dream. Uh, yeah. He's practicing with his bow and arrow. Roger, when you talk about Buddhism, it, it makes me you know, want to drop everything straight away and just become a Buddhist myself. Um, <laughs> so if any of our listeners actually want to do that, um, what mm. is the best way for them to start that journey or that quest today? Uh, I mean, we're talking about whether there's any books you can recommend, documentaries or movies, TV shows, music or podcasts, or whether there's any practices they can pick up easily, meditation practices, what's the best place to get those, or do they just seek out a monastery themselves, or how would you recommend people get their toes wet? Uh, I would probably say, in some ways, I'd probably say to what to avoid. Okay. I know it sounds a bit negative. What what I would avoid is one, just jumping in too soon and going, right, I'm going to be a this type of this, and that's me done. And I, I also highly recommend that people don't become monks and nuns. <laughs> now, <laughs> when I say that, the reason I say that is because if someone's going to do it, they should do it regardless of whether I highly recommend it or not. Right. So don't do it because anyone is expecting you to. Don't do it because you think it's going to do anything for you or bring you anything. Now, one of the reasons I'd say that is because you don't need to do that if you, it's not the only way to practice, and it's not the only way to do extreme practice as well. You can, you could go to a retreat center and somewhere, you know, wherever it happens to be. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be in Asia somewhere, and for months, and not necessarily be a monk or a nun. The one thing I would say is be very aware that every tradition thinks it's the tradition. <laughs> the other thing I would say is. And I'll be keen to say this in some ways, is that I don't think that other traditions don't have a lot of these things going on in them. But I do think that they they won't necessarily have them going on in some of the more, let's call them, conventional manifestations. Like, I, I, I think that Christianity, for instance, if mystical is a word to use, I don't know, whatever we, we call it, spiritual, you know, has a, a deep understanding and awareness of spiritual realms. I, d- I remember seeing an Egyptian caveman being interviewed once. He said, you all think we're out here having this peaceful time. He said, 
this is war. This, this is war. This, this, we struggle every day. But, you know, the way I feel like I might know a little bit about what he means by that struggle, and it, it won't be, you know, it's not just struggling with memories of childhood or whatever, you know, it's, it's deep, it's elemental, I suppose. Um, so, but I, I think it's useful to read books, but I wouldn't get too obsessed with them as well. I mean, that'd be the other warning is that you don't like kind of just read your head off. Really do make an effort to get a daily practice, even if it's very short. Just, uh, you know, meditation, it, you know, that's not the word that's used in Buddhism. For instance, the Tibetan word for Dom. Dom means to familiarize. You familiarize yourself with that state. But what I would say is you're familiarizing yourself with, with uncertainty. You're letting go of form. You're, you're, you're becoming familiar with letting go of form. And that's really important. When I was doing the meditation retreat of yours that I came along mm. to, it was the formless meditation that gave me the most mm. powerful experiences. Um, mm. And that was the one that I actually talked about on Spirit Box, which is okay. Dara Mason's podcast, when I found myself just in that short time. I mean, I, I don't know how long it was. I'm guessing 10 minutes or five minutes. Mm -hmm. I found myself in a whole different room with a whole mm. different setup and with a shadowy dark man character there talking mm. to me, well, touching me rather than talking to me. And that mm. was all just from meditating without form, like without a, a mantra, without even mm. holding onto my breath or anything like that. You know, that was just letting go. I, mm. I've tried it again since and I haven't managed it outside of that environment, but I felt that that experience really gave a taste of what that kind of formless well, yeah, experience is. Mm. I mean, I, I think, you know, when, you, when you're letting go of that familiar style of thinking and, and problem-solving mind, then you know, all sorts of experiences can come up uh, in, that, that were probably there in a sense, if you see what I mean, like it, they, they get um, liberated or kind of uncovered. And the challenge is in some ways to, to keep on letting go to, to uh, yeah because if we turn a form if we turn an experience into another form then we've limited ourselves so yeah. you know it's, it's, it's allowing things to be and letting things be letting things go if people out there haven't meditated before what's mm. a, a good style for them to start with um, you know, I mean, everyone's going to be familiar with things like following the breath, body scanning, you know, like if anyone doesn't know what body scanning is, it's essentially just moving your awareness around the body, you know. I'd say if you're going to, to, to sit and meditate, then uh, it's, it, don't underestimate the body in terms of its inclusion in that. So what I mean by that is a key sometimes, and that's why mindfulness is, is, is really an important support to, to meditation, to the lifestyle, is that the key to uh, letting go of 
kind of problem solving, cerebral kind of processing in terms of being occupied is to is to bring our awareness more into the body. And of course, that's partly what the breathing is doing. I would say beyond just the breathing aspect of the body, it's also being aware of your body in a more holistic sense, just your breathing. And also that instead of seeking to do anything with your breath, you're just trying to find your natural breath. You're not, you're not, don't, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that, that that's never got any value to it. Obviously, breath control is uh, useful. But in terms of meditation and doing it as a foundational practice, some specific practice that's got certain goals in mind, if you're looking to understand your mind and your own, and, you know, let's call it achieving peace or serenity, then it's more and more seeking ways Okay, in fact, I use a phrase which is often the key, I would say, which is to rest in the uncontrived state. Now, that sounds simple, but it's like the most ultimate level of meditation there is. But that doesn't mean it's got no value when people are starting. So, seeking however you can, whatever you can do to get closer to what you could describe to yourself as being uncontrived. So that's with your breath, with your mind state, with your body, etc. So of course, there's certain forms to the way you sit, which is important. So that I'm not saying just like flop out on the sofa, just say, yeah, I'm meditating, man, and not do anything. I mean, have yeah. a certain type of uh, straight, reasonably straight back, you know, but not like stiff and rigid, but just, you know, there should be a very vague S shape to your spine really, if you're kind of sitting properly um, i mean naturally for a human being i don't mean like just meditate um and just allow your awareness to to be there There's a lot of emphasis i'll put on allowance rather than being strict and trying to make yourself do something it's more a sense of allowing yourself to be where you are Allow yourself to be in the moment, allow, yourself, allow your body to be what it is, and allow, if you've got anxiety, yeah, I mean, this is a big one, actually. Right? So if you've got a sense of anxiety, if you've got a sense of, I just can't sit, my mind's going all over the place, I'm worrying about this, I'm worrying about that, allow that as well. Because if you can allow that, there's only one thing... There's only one way that can work, and that's if you, there's a mind that's bigger than all of that frenetic energy and activity that's allowing it. But you can't allow yourself to be like that unless there's something bigger that can, that can contain that experience. You're, that's what you're tuning into. You're tuning into the part of your mind that's bigger and all of those experiences. Don't try and get rid of them. Give that wild horse a big field. Don't try and tie it down. Yeah, I really like that. I love what you were saying, reminding me of uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which is a book that you'd recommended to me by Shinrai mm. Suzuki. 
And mm. that has that whole thing about each time you sit down to zazen, which I think is what they call mm. it in that tradition, it's it's like it's the first time. And if you think that mm. it's not, and if you think that you're getting good at it or getting better mm. at it, mm. then you're actually getting further away from what it really is, mm. which is just to kind of sit there each time like it's the first time, which I really mm. like that idea. Um, can you recommend any of the books that you think, I know that you said not to get too caught up in books, but can you think of any that are sort of um, essential for... Um, uh, you know, or, or, uh, or I mean, we've talked about the Tao Te Ching. We've talked about Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Yeah. Um, you mentioned um, a bit about hemispheres. I'm reading on on your recommendation as well. Um, the Master and His Emissary by Ian McGilchrist, yeah. which I'm, yeah. I'm really enjoying. Uh, there's, um, I mean, I, a, a lot of the story of of the the Buddha is in Siddhartha by Herman Hesse as well. Um, mm. Is there anything else that you would would you think would be really good reading for anyone who's interested in this? Uh, I mean, I would say Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, and there's there's also not. Hang on, that sounds. It's going to be a confusing sentence. Additionally, there's another book called Not Always So. By the same, yeah, it, it's Shinryu Suzuki, right? So he 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 gave talks. So these books are each chapter is essentially a, a short talk that he would give. You know, most chapters. Only about normally about eight or nine pages. Long. Yeah, but they're very pithy, very profound, sim- profound in their simplicity, but also profound. Um, I'd say they are great uh, companions to sitting in general. Um, if someone really wants to get into, let's say. The, the the interface between the philosophy of Buddhism and the practice. Then there's a book called The Sun of Wisdom, as in S U N, by Empo Sultrin. Um, and that's a commentary on. A, a traditional text called the Prajnaparamitas. Prajnaparamita translated really means wisdom that's gone beyond transcendental wisdom. And it's a, it, it's quite an analytical book, you know, what, an analytical text. But the purpose of the Prajnaparamita and the reason it's called the Prajnaparamita is because it's, it's made, the intention is that it takes your intellect to a point where it's nowhere else to go. So emptiness is now the only place to go. So it's kind of designed that you read it and then you meditate, you read it and then you meditate. And it's very practical. It's analysis of things like fire, movement, wood, burning, time, uh, all elemental kind of experiences that everyone has. So it's not, there's a few, there's a few esoteric aspects like Buddhism. Mostly it's analysis of phenomena and experiences and then reflecting on what the nature of those things are. And, and then, you, you know, there's guidance within the book as well. You know, I mean, he's made way more. Fantastic. I think that's a really, could be a life changer, I think. It, especially if someone's quite analytical and heady. I mean, if anyone's into philosophy, then 
it's there's there's a lot of crossover between that and Zeno's uh, paradoxes, the, the ancient Greek philosophy. Incredible. Well, thank you very much. And um, if people want to find you, uh, do you have a website or any social media presence or anything like that? Yeah, I've got. Um, I mean, I guess you have like a description thing underneath when you post. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do show notes for all this. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Keith will. Yeah. Keith will. <laughs> uh, right. Okay. We've got a guy. <laughs> a very I've good got guy. a website uh, called. Uh, it's actually just being rebuilt. I'm getting it done, redone because it's a bit needs. Rejigging a bit. So that's Jaya Counseling. Okay. Um, I'm also about to do your kind of thing as well. I, I have done a few solo videos, but um, I've got a, well, I suppose what I'd call a podcast YouTube channel uh, called The Wellbeing Evolution. And I would emphasize it's the wellbeing evolution because there's a pretender to my throne. <laughs> uh, I, can't, I can't even remember what they, what they do. It's, it's, I think it's to do with nutrition or something. And they, I think they're called wellbeing evolution. It's fun. The well. And it's specific. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it's specifically to do with the crossover between philosophy uh, and spirituality, like especially Eastern sort of uh, mysticism, I suppose, and sort of the therapeutic approach and therapeutic experiences. And there's also an Instagram page as well. They're, they're, uh, what I would say is they're both in quite a nascent, at quite a nascent sort of level. So kind of just getting to the point where I'm trying to make slightly better recordings and things like There's a few things on there that I've got. It's content. It's me talking, but it's just me in a sort of really bog standard background talk. So. Excellent. Oh, that sounds really good. I didn't know about that. Yes, yeah, so I'll, I'll search that out. And if people want to uh, find more of Vase, uh, you can get us on Twitter or Instagram. That's at Vase and then Vase spelled backwards. So that's at V-A-Y-S-E-E-S-Y-A-V. You can get us at www.vase.uk, which is also the place that you can get the complete unabridged show notes. Uh, that is the best place to go for the show notes. Uh, but you can actually find us on all the major podcasting platforms. You can email us on vaseinfo at gmail.com with any of your own experiences or ideas or anything that you'd like to bring to our attention. You can get the soundtrack on Bandcamp, which is done by our very own student James Buckley here under the name Polypores. And any money that he gets from that, he kindly puts back into the podcast. And if you have any spare cash that you'd like to throw away, we have a Ko-Fi. You can donate as much or as little as you want. But if you give us a monthly donation, you can join our Discord server, which is a lovely place to be. So thank you very, very much, Roger. Really, really appreciate your time. And as always, I've learned loads and I'm sure everyone else has as well. Yeah. Um, So just obviously before you go, just uh, something's been troubling me and I just just thought I I ought to ask. (laughs) Imagine, right, so the... the uh, one day you're sat in your house and uh, in fact one evening so it's dark it's a dark November evening you're sat in your house I'm imagining that now yeah. imagine <laughs> yeah. now in your mind's eye and there's a, you hear a, a strange humming noise and there's a light in the sky okay yes. and the light comes comes towards you and you're like whoa what's going on here it's a helicopter right it's the Dalai Lama's official helicopter and he <laughs> right. comes out of his helicopter the helicopter lands in your garden or, or area of of wherever you are yes. and uh, the Dalai Lama comes out with his with his entourage and knocks on your door and uh, 
He's like, Roger, what's up? I'm 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 around for a few days. Mm-hmm. What would you like to do? And what would you what would you do with the Dalai Lama for a day? If you had a day to sort of hang out with him, what would you like to like to do with him? And this can be a serious answer or not. <laughs> you know? Wait, I'm not gonna impose my uh, control I, over you. What what would you like to do? I think I'd probably like to uh Walk about with him a bit. If I assume he's just about still mobile, uh, yeah. chat chat quite a bit. I'd probably like to show him a couple of films. What films would you show him? There we go. We're getting to the root of it now. Um, I think that uh, there's a couple of films that I really like. Uh, one of them's called Bartleby. I've heard uh, of it. I've not seen it. Yeah. I've heard of it. Well, they they remade that, I think, about 15 years ago, maybe a bit less. So it's an old Herman Melville story, the novella. Um, and But they, they, they it was made in 1972, I believe. And it had uh, Paul Schofield, Sir Thomas More, and Man Four Seasons. He's not the, he's not the uh, title character. Uh, and it's just very, just feel it's very profound. Uh, and I, I think from my own personal perspective, it's quite nostalgic. It's 1970s uh, London, which is my infant life was some sort of echoes there of my own uh, early years. Um, and I really like um, my dinner with Andre. I don't know if you've heard. So it's that it doesn't even really need to be a film, really. That flags it's basically it's restaurants, and it covers a lot. It's got a really nice arc. To, you know, he's quite resistant to going for this meal with this guy that he used to know, and he's kind of you know goes half-heartedly, and by the time he leaves, he's he's had a transformative experience through this interaction with this and the guy's been traveling around the world he used to be a theater director he's it's it's not that he's like full of pithy wisdom it's more that he 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 generates all these kind of questions about life and and his experience and the way he's seen the world and and what life what is life etc and he leaves he leaves the other character just going home really quite dazed and expecting you know uh and it's yeah it's got a, a lot of pathos to it a lot of pathos, especially towards the end it's opened up this whole new world of of, of possibilities that i hadn't even thought of, of watching films with the dalai lama because i, yeah, I, I, I really I, like he loves a comedy right so like i'd yeah, love to watch yeah. something like ghostbusters with him and just sit him down and just say like Mr. Lama, um, get a load of this. Yeah. And do you know what? Like, after hearing the way that you talked about them two films, I feel like I really hope this happens for you now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I've got my fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs>